Section 16 of The Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jenks. Siege of Antioch, 1097 AD. The siege of this city in Syria is notable as the first in which the Crusaders had all agreed to act together for the common good, since they had found in former battles and sieges that the jealousy of different commanders and bodies of troops had brought disaster. Antioch lies in a valley on the Orontes River about eastward of the island of Cyprus and ten miles from the shore of the Mediterranean. It was surrounded by a double wall, guarded by 450 towers, and in addition there was one stronghold or citadel against the southern wall. The river ran along the length of the northwestern wall, departing from it more widely as one went eastward, and leaving a broad triangular plain just to the north of the city. Against this great fortification marched an army of 300,000 men, the strength of which was mainly in its mounted knights in chainmail. The Turks, who then held the city, before the coming of the Crusaders had turned most of the Christians out of the city, retaining their wives and children as hostages to prevent them from joining the enemy. They had strengthened the fortifications as much as possible, had collected ample stores, and within the city they could command a force of perhaps 25,000 men, six or 7,000 being horsemen. The Christian army marched upon the city on October 21, 1097, saluted the city of the strong walls with shouts and the blasts of trumpets to which no response came from the silent turks marching to the plain northward of the city the crusaders spent fifteen days in bringing in provisions and cattle from the surrounding country destroying the farms and houses round about felling trees and bringing together a great mass of material with which to build themselves a camp it seemed as if they were about to found a town in the valley before the walls not only did they make shelters and erect tents but the multitude of camp followers men and women some of the very worst description erected booths and houses of entertainment as if preparing for a great fair there seems to have been little military discipline luxury and riot ruled everywhere fruits corn cattle had been brought in in such profusion that the men disdained to eat any but the choicest portions of food or to drink anything but costly wines it seemed as if the vast host had gathered for disgraceful merrymaking. No thought was given to the Turks in the besieged town, the surrender of which they thought would take place daily. Yet of all the gates of Antioch, the besiegers commanded but three, all those upon the southern side of the city being open, enabling the Turks to communicate with their friends outside. In order to procure forage for the thousands of horses in the night's camp, parties were sent across the Orontes River to range about the country. But the Turks, noticing this, one day made a sally, fell upon the foragers, and slew great numbers of them before they could recross the river. To make this attack, the Turks had crossed a bridge to the westward of the Crusaders' camp, but instead of trying at first to put a force to guard this bridge, the Crusaders built a floating bridge laid upon boats back of their own camp. Though this made the retreat of the foragers easy, it did not prevent the Turks from sending out strong parties of horsemen across their bridge to the westward to fall by night upon the disorderly Christian camp. A party of crusaders at last made an attack upon the stone bridge, but owing to its strength and the vigorous resistance of the Turkish soldiers, they were unable to destroy it. 
It was then resolved to build a strong wooden fortification like a great tower, and to roll it to a position from which it could command the stone bridge and keep the Turks from crossing. If this bridge could be guarded, the besiegers could not readily be attacked, since the ground between them and the Turks was so wet and boggy that the Turkish horsemen could not readily cross it. The great tower was built and slowly moved into position to command the Turkish bridge. Hardly had it been put in place when a strong force of Turkish horsemen dashed out of the bridge gate, charged upon the newly constructed tower, drove back its guards, and set the tower on fire. In order to prevent another such attack, the Christians now placed before the bridge a battery of machines for throwing darts and stones, so placed that a heavy fire could be opened upon the bridge. So long as these machines were in action, the Turks remained safely behind their walls. But as soon as the fire slackened, the light Turkish cavalry with sword and spear swarmed out again like flies and gave the besiegers no rest. The reason why these machines were not used to batter down the Turkish defenses was simply that they were not powerful enough to make any impression upon the enormous walls, which had been constructed by the Roman Emperor Justinian. It was now decided by the Christian leaders that the only way to prevent these sallies from the bridge gate was to block up the bridge by masses of masonry. So while a heavy fire was directed upon the bridge, workmen carried great stones to the bridgehead and succeeded at last in blocking it up so as to prevent the Turkish horsemen from using it. But as there was still another gate to the westward, the only result of blocking up this bridge gate was to make the Turks go a little longer way round. The attacks of the swift horsemen, who on their lighter chargers could easily distance the heavy Christian horsemen, still continued and caused great losses among the parties who were forced to cross the bridge of boats northward of the crusaders' camp in order to get forage for the horses. Many battles and skirmishes took place at this floating bridge of boats, and many lost their lives here, owing to the failure of the crusaders to station a force in front of each of the gates of the city. All this minor fighting was entirely useless and brought them no nearer to the capture of Antioch. Meanwhile, time was passing, and to the plenty and wastefulness of the early days had succeeded want and bitter famine. The parties sent out for provisions were frequently driven back or slain by Turkish horsemen. Finally, eatables became so scarce and prices in the camp so high that the rich could hardly buy the simplest food, and the poorer pilgrims lived on the merest scraps, or even gnawed upon leather and the soft bark of trees. Sickness followed the famine, thousands died and with difficulty were buried. The knight's horses were reduced from 70,000 to 2,000. The rainy season came when the huts and tents could not protect the miserable crusaders, and every day that passed added to their misery and desolation. As it never rains but it pours, during this wet and depressing season, the crusaders were made still more despondent by the news that a prince of Denmark named Sveno had set out to join them with a force of 1,500 pilgrims, and accompanied by his promised bride Florina, daughter of the Duke of Burgundy had been attacked just as he encamped one evening by an overwhelming force of Turks and his forces slain to the last man. This painful news brought despair to many already discouraged, and the faint-hearted began to steal away. Robert of Normandy withdrew to Laodicea and only came back after much persuasion. A Greek leader named Tactitius, true to his name, pretended to depart for supplies and was no more seen on the field. Peter the Hermit, to whose frenzied preaching the expedition was due, 
was one of the refugees, but after being overtaken by the great Prince Tancred and soundly scolded by another great crusader, Bohemond, the preacher was forgiven without punishment, in which he was more fortunate than his companion, who was compelled as a penance to stand all night in the pouring rain at the door of Bohemond's tent. The Duke of Lorraine, one of the strongest leaders, now fell ill, and a council was called to see whether the siege should be given up. Though almost in despair, it was decided to make one more attempt to procure provisions, and a small army of 2,000 horsemen and 16,000 foot soldiers went out on a foraging expedition to get provisions. Though they collected a fair store, as they were returning to their camp, the alert Turkish forces rushed upon them and took from them what they had so painfully gathered, except just enough to supply the starving camp for a few days. Instead of blaming themselves for their wastefulness and lack of foresight, Providence was blamed for their misfortunes, as was the way in those times, and this opinion was strengthened by the shock of an earthquake and the appearance of strange lights in the northern skies. A bishop, who was the Pope's legate, ordained a solemn fast of three days for the starving crusaders, and there followed processions, masses, and psalm-singing, together with the enforcing of strict rules against gambling, drinking, and all other evil-doing. All the camp followers and women were ordered from the camp, and for the first time there seemed to be some hope that the Christian soldiers would attend strictly to the business of the war. One offending monk received what the Middle Ages considered a fair trial, being made to walk blindfolded over a piece of ground where pieces of red-hot iron had been placed. As he was unlucky enough to burn his toes, it was believed that heaven had convicted him of guilt, and he was severely whipped and led in a disgraceful rogue's march around the camp. These things did little to help in taking the city, but to prove that they were in earnest, the crusaders now ploughed and planted great patches of ground within sight of the walls, to convince the Turks that they meant to fight it out even if they had to take to farming to support themselves. These things, at all events, restored the crusaders' courage, and their confidence grew as the weather began to become warmer and supplies to be brought into the camp. It was soon seen that whatever the Christians devised promptly became known to the Turks, for the camp was full of spies. Among the Syrians from the country round about who came to sell provisions, many Turkish spies mingled and reported every measure taken against the city. Bohemund, knowing that they could not detect these intruders, determined to scare them away. He ordered that two of the Turkish prisoners should be slain, cut in pieces, and portions of their bodies roasted by his cooks. To all inquirers, the cooks were told to say that it was the intention of the crusaders to devour the bodies of all Turks or spies taken in the camp. The horrified spies one by one stole away, telling the awful story of the crusaders' cannibalism, and this frightful tale soon spread throughout the East. There still exist old ballads relating such barbarities, probably without any better foundation than this ghastly trick played by Bohemond upon the spies. Not long afterward, there came an embassy from Egypt, representing a faction of the Mohammedans opposed to the party holding Antioch against the Crusaders, and offering an alliance against the common enemy. To entertain these ambassadors, the camp was gaily decorated, the soldiers all arrayed in their best, and games, races, and nightly contests took place for their entertainment. These details show the difference between the warfare of the Crusaders and that of the ancients, as well as between those times and ours. It seemed that the Crusaders were glad of anything to distract their attention from the task of overcoming the besieged city, 
and yet they knew that there was danger of a relieving army appearing unless they could soon finish their task hardly had the merrymakings come to an end when carriers came riding at full speed to the camp to announce that a large force of turks was marching to relieve their besieged brethren to meet these the chivalrous knights sent only a small force who made their way hastily to a narrow pass through which the relieving army must march this defile lay between the river orontes and a large lake and the ground around it consisted of little hills and valleys among which it was easy to conceal bodies of men bohemund had seen the advantages of this position and when he was told of the advance of the turkish army which consisted of from twelve to twenty-eight thousand men according to various accounts the crusaders gathered all their best mounted and most effective men but could get together no more than seven hundred knights of course the strength of the knights charges depended upon the condition of their horses and no more than this small number of men could be provided with steeds strong enough for the night march and the fight that was to follow although the field was only about seven miles from the city having reached the pass the knights awaited the dawn and just at daylight the turkish lancers were seen advancing preceded by vast numbers of archers on horseback as soon as the turks had entered the narrow pass the crusaders formed in five squadrons with one held in reserve and charged upon the turkish van had the attack been made in open ground the turks according to their usual custom would have swung in both ends of their long line upon the small body of horsemen and completely surrounded them in this narrow pass the foremost turks driven back by the heavier horsemen charging with their lances in rest fell back upon the advancing line threw the army into disorder and in a few minutes the battle was over and the turks in full retreat over two thousand turks were drowned in the lake or river and the seven hundred christian knights pursued the retreating foe so vigorously that before night they had reached the camp of the vast turkish army and captured it with all the baggage riding back in triumph the knights carried with them hundreds of the turkish warriors heads and instead of being gladdened by the sight of the relieving army the garrison within the town were informed of its defeat by showers of their countrymen's heads which were shot from the military machines over the walls warfare in those days was a grim matter it was now february ten ninety eight in the following month the same tactics were repeated when the turks from within the city came charging across the bridge into the plain intending to dash upon the christian camp once more the heavy charge of the knights with their long lances threw the lighter horsemen of the turks into disorder and since the river was at their backs they could neither retreat nor reform and hundreds of them were slain or captured there was about this time another fierce battle before the walls in which a party of genoese bringing provisions to the christians were defeated by the turks and then the turks in turn were attacked by the crusaders from the camp and routed with great loss as they attempted to retreat again into the city in fact so narrow was the turks escape that only the coming of night prevented the christians from forcing their way into the city during this fight an incident occurred which shows the bodily strength of some of the powerful knights a gigantic turk who had already slain several of the christians charged against the duke of lorraine who with a single blow cut the turk's body off at the waist this ghastly exploit was witnessed from the walls of the town and we are told that the air resounded with the cries and lamentations of the old men women and children who stood on the walls these victories though they made the christians safer did little to hasten the siege and the next work of the christians seemed likely to turn it into a mere blockade 
they built to the eastward and westward of the town two tall castles with a strong force to guard each to prevent the attacks of the turks and also to shut in that part of the city which up to this time had been unguarded now that everything seemed to smile upon the crusaders the timid came flocking back to camp there was no longer any danger of sallies from the town in force but now and then small bodies of turks would charge upon the crusaders who ventured too far from their camps thus they captured and slew a german count who was carelessly amusing himself by playing dice with a noblewoman at the edge of a wood too near the city walls one pilgrim who they took was ordered to beg for ransom from the walls of the city but instead of begging for release the hero cried from the battlements be steady and persevere for all the chiefs of the enemy are fallen and no one remains to lead them with vigor and understanding by this defiance he lost his life now famine began to be felt in the town while in the crusaders camp there was again plenty but since no steps were taken to force their way into the city the siege might have lasted for weeks or months longer had it not been for the treachery of one of the leaders within the walls having been compelled to give up a store of provisions he had collected for his own family he secretly sent word to bohemund offering to admit the besiegers bohemund concealing the treacherous offer tried to get from his fellow knights the promise that the town should belong to whichever of the christian princes should bring about its capture but they maintained that this was contrary to their agreement to act together and so bohemond did not reveal the secret of his power to take the city news came that a second relieving army was gathering and again the flight from the camp commenced causing the princes to make a decree that death should be the penalty for desertion and that all should take an oath to persevere for fourteen years if necessary to take the town the approach of this turkish force enabled bohemund to make terms with the rest they reluctantly agreed that the town should belong to him who brought about its fall and word was sent to the traitor within that his offer to give up the stronghold would be accepted with every day had arisen the suspicion of treachery among the turks and this traitor pyrrhus was one of those called to counsel in an effort to discover the treason he boldly advised that all those in charge of the gates should on the next day surrender their offices to others which he could safely do since he had made arrangements to give up the town the very night of the council a large number of christian soldiers pretended to march away from the town just at nightfall while a strong force was secretly brought around to the foot of the tower where pyrrhus was in command after some delay a cord was lowered from the tower a rope ladder drawn up and a few of the christians admitted just then the ladder broke and no other was to be had but meanwhile those at the foot of the wall succeeded in bursting open a small gate or doorway and having taken the turks by surprise they drove the defenders from the walls and were soon in possession of ten of the towers that commanded them before the turks could gather and resist this small party the christians had forced their way to the bridge gate just to the westward of the crusaders camp and thrown it open the christian knights who were lying in wait poured into the city their banners were hoisted on the walls and in a single day ten thousand of the inhabitants were slain thus fell antioch after seven months by the treachery of one of its defenders and this is the end of the story of the siege although shortly afterward the relieving army arrived surrounded the city and besieged the christians in turn the crusaders were reduced almost to despair and saved finally only by what they believed to be a miracle 
a certain priest dreamed that the lance that pierced the Saviour's side was buried in the church of St. Peter. Though the papal legate refused to believe the story, under the direction of Bohemund, the lance was sought for and found, buried twelve feet in the ground. This relic so excited the enthusiasm of the Christian soldiers that they fought with irresistible courage. The gates were thrown open, and as the clergy upon the walls waved their crosses, singing the psalm, Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, the crusaders, shouting, God wills it, marched upon the great host of the Turks and put them to flight. Assisted, so the legend ran, by three heavenly knights in glittering armor and white raiment. This was the last attempt to relieve the city of Antioch. This account shows us that in the science of taking cities, the crusaders were far inferior to the Romans of the empire. Comparing the siege of Jerusalem by Titus with the siege of Antioch might lead one to think that the dates of the two should be reversed, and yet Titus lived in the first century, and Tancred a thousand years later. But the weapons and the equipment of the Romans were as good as those of the Crusaders, and their learning was greater. When the days of gunpowder began, all was changed, but there were to be five centuries and more of warfare before gunpowder reached a place in the military art that put the knights hopelessly into the past. End of section 16. Recording by Colleen McMahon.